I early on had a neurologist called me and said, who do you think you are? What are you doing? And I said, your patient's in my office, not because I'm holding a gun to their head. Obviously what you're doing is not working and they're desperate. And I'm not taking advantage because I don't sell the oil. I'm not making money on that. I'm just taking on a patient who I'm willing to help. And P.S., she's doing better. I don't understand all the anger. <laughs> Where's it coming from? And then I realized something very interesting is that, and, and I'm sorry to say this if any doctors are listening. I'm sorry if this hurts your feelings, but check your ego. This is a child, and it's a child's life. So the ego has nothing to do with it. Why? If a doctor is helping somebody, and it appears to be safe, and the parents are thrilled with the result, where do you get off saying, don't do this? I just, I'm sorry. I'm just going to call it out for what it is. You can really feel the anger in that excerpt from Dr. Bonnie Goldstein's interview as she describes some pretty nasty reactions early on from a paediatric neurologist um, who was outraged that she was successfully treating a child with epilepsy using cannabis. And sadly, this is an attitude that continues around the world today, um, never more so than in the in the UK, unfortunately. This is a fantastic interview. Dr. Bonnie Goldstein is a legend, although she probably wouldn't say that about herself, but she is one of the most long-standing and experienced doctors who treats children with epilepsy, autism, various other conditions, very successfully with cannabis and dedicates her time to educating parents and uh, doctors and anybody really who has an interest around the world and sharing her tremendous knowledge. So really, if you think this interview would be of interest to anybody you know, share it with them because they're going to learn so much. You're listening to Cannabis Voices, people's stories in their own words about the healing power of the cannabis plant. So good morning, Bonnie. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No, it's a pleasure. I feel like I'm speaking to a legend of the cannabis well, I, world. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's nice. I don't feel that way, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you are, believe me, you, you, you certainly are. Um, but your life hasn't always been dedicated to um, uh, helping children or adults um, get the right treatment with cannabis, that you had a life before cannabis, which I'd love to hear about. What, what, what was your medical career dedicated to before cannabis? So I worked in the field of pediatric emergency medicine for many years. Uh, after my training in pediatrics, I went on to be chief resident at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, where I trained. And then um, part of my being chief resident, you would um, help out if another area of the hospital needed you. And I started doing what's called critical care transport, which I really liked. We would, you know, go to a small hospital or uh, to a clinic if a child was uh, in extreme distress and pick them up and then bring them back to uh, Children's Hospital or some other hospitals that we contracted with. So that was very exciting. Those are the adrenaline days, but I enjoyed it. And so from that, I transitioned to pediatric emergency medicine for about 13, 14 years. So 
working um, in a busy um, uh, emergency room in Los Angeles, um, helping to train uh, residents and medical students as well. So it was very um, uh, fast paced and challenging and I loved it. Um, but then I was burned out after, you know, 13, 14 years and I had a small child at home and so I needed to make a, a change in my life. I didn't know this would be the change, but, but that's how it all evolved. Did you have any preconceptions at this stage about cannabis, in particular to prescribing it to children? Well, so back then I had been around cannabis, you know, in college and even a little bit after college, but not really. Um, <clears throat> but I never thought it was dangerous in terms, you know, vis-a-vis -vis other drugs, right? Other illicit drugs. Um, when I first started working in this field, it was because I witnessed a friend of mine have tremendous benefit from medical cannabis use. And it opened my eyes and I started reading the scientific literature. I read about the endocannabinoid system, which at the time was brand new to me. I had never even heard of it. So I, um, that opened my eyes to it and I didn't really have a positive or negative view of it. I was kind of neutral when I very first started. So what did you think when you first found out about the endocannabinoid system? Did it kind of blow your mind? <laughs> it did actually, Mary. It was <laughs> like, how am I a doctor and I don't know about this? <laughs> that was really what blew my mind more. You know, so yes, it's a fascinating system and it's um, really interesting to study and learn about. And once you uh, <clears throat> start to understand, <clears throat> excuse me, the science of it, it, it actually, <clears throat> excuse me, um, helps to um, clarify why cannabis is medicine. I mean, yeah. that's remember all medicines in the body are, have a target and that target um, is usually something that has to do with the underlying root cause of the illness, right? So you're targeting that, or sometimes it's a target of just a symptom, but it's just, it was fascinating to me to learn that there is this system that was discovered, you know, late 80s, early 1990s, and it's not being talked about, it's not being um, thought about, except in very, you know, isolated places, some, you know, labs here and there throughout the world. But, you know, when clinicians are in the room treating patients, it's not something that I was even, I, I never even heard of it. So how was I going to address yeah. it? Right. And that's the problem is that there are conditions that are very likely related to endocannabinoid system dysfunction. And what's interesting is Dr. Ethan Russo, proposed back in 2003 in um, an, a letter he wrote uh, to a journal which was published how um, or why cannabis may be treatment for certain conditions like and he he had the triad migraine uh, um, irritable bowel syndrome and fibromyalgia and when you look at those conditions we don't have any cures for those conditions and they're considered um, difficult to treat or often treatment resistant. Uh, if you've ever talked to anybody with those conditions and many others like 
you know, uh, uh, many other conditions that fall into this difficult to treat category. It may be because we're not thinking about what the target is, which is the endocannabinoid system. Uh, and again, every other medicine might treat symptoms and, and might be helpful. However, if there's an underlying imbalance there uh, within the endocannabinoid system, we're, we're missing the target. And that just doesn't make sense to me to leave that un, untreated. It's that sort of, it's a possible way of getting to the root, isn't it? And, and as you know, we all know, um, allopathic medicine generally is kind of kind of firefighting, isn't it? It's just that sort of, you know, trying to either, well, dampen down symptoms quite often, you know, if you kind of throw steroids at them, oh, I don't feel pain anymore, but you've, <laughs> you know, there's a reason you're not feeling pain. You're not, you're not really getting to the origin of it. So it potentially, it does feel like that kind of the holy grail of, I guess, of what kind of integrative medicine is about, which is well, let, let's actually find out what what's going on here, or or at least one contributing cause, because I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I, I feel like there's a kind of, often there's a kind of coming together of conditions, and then and the, and then one of which could be an endocannabinoid deficiency, and then something like fibromyalgia um, may manifest, you know. Um, but um, but interesting, you mentioned Ethan Russo, and I, I remember speaking to him in, in a previous episode in the podcast, and he suggested that it wasn't necessarily, you know, people talk about, you know, it's not taught in medical school, and, um, and this is because it's, you know, linked to cannabis, and um, and I remember him saying that, you know, the, the syllabus is pretty packed, you know, um, already, you know, so it's not necessarily something against cannabis, it's just squeezing something else significant in um but it, it does seem promising that there are you know there are some med schools that are teaching it um and nursing schools i mean i, I spoke to eloise teeson recently and, and she you know has been teaching it to nurses so hopefully we're, we're sort of going in in the right di um, direction um so i i i'm interested to know so how did you move then so you had this experience you know observing what happened with this good friend um how did you then start seeing patients um and and recommending cannabis that's a good question i uh believe it or not um had heard about or well i went with her to her appointment and later on i called back uh to that office and just asked them you know uh to speak to the doctor it was kind he was kind enough to get on the phone and he said if you want to do this i'd be happy to have you in my office and i went and i just observed i shadowed him uh this very nice doctor in in a local area here and uh he was an emergency medicine doctor for adults so you know we did have a few things in common and uh then i you know started reading i tried to educate myself as much as possible and started working in the field in California where I am. Uh, any physician who's licensed and in good standing with the medical board can recommend cannabis uh, to a patient. So I satisfied those requirements and I um, started seeing patients. And I'll tell you in the beginning, uh, my patients definitely knew more than I knew. Right. I learned a tremendous amount from them. Yeah. Uh, and by supplementing with reading and, you know, maybe, you know, 30 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do this, but with the internet, you can educate yourself. So I spent a lot of time reading articles and um, was working quite a bit. 
seeing patients and it just, you know, kind of, I'm a science geek anyway. So I just kind of delved in, you know, and what I noticed interestingly after the first, I'd say three or four months was that, and remember these were adult patients I was seeing um, in the beginning. I hadn't been really, it wasn't a thing yet to treat children uh, with cannabis, although people probably were doing it. It's just they weren't doing it openly or, or even telling a doctor that they were doing it uh, for the most part. But what I found so interesting is no matter what condition the patient had, uh, all the patients were reporting very similar results, mm. meaning I'm sleeping better. I'm not nearly as anxious as I used to be. Uh, my pain is down and I stopped taking, you know, all these opioids or all these anti-inflammatories. Um, I, my, I'm getting um, uh, more, I'm more functional at work. Um, I have a better relationship with my spouse and my children. I mean, I heard these same results over and over and over. And how often do you hear that from a patient taking opiates? My my marriage is improved. I mean, it, you know, that's kind of uh, something that usually wrecks relationships and 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 uh, families. So um, yeah, that so that was did that kind of shock you to keep hearing this narrative over and over again? Well, it did, and I joke around that I I used to say I don't think they're all in the parking lot saying let's go tell her this like they're all getting their story straight, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. They're all independently feeling very similar results. Yeah, and they're happy, and their quality mm. of life is better. But yet they still have their condition. I didn't cure anybody, mm. and that is that was very profound and impactful for me. I thought, this is so pleasant to, tr and look, back in pediatric ER, look, I saved lives. People would come in and, you know, severe, a child with severe asthma attack, and you, you save them, or someone with toxic shock syndrome would come in, and you would, you know, make the right diagnosis and save them. It's very rewarding, but it's also extraordinarily stressful as a clinician and after mm -hmm. years of doing it and then you know being a mom as well and trying to do all of this work um i felt like i was never off right so for me as a physician to have patients coming back where i felt that the reports although anecdotal were true no i don't we required medical records for patients to get their approval in the practice I worked in. So we kind of, you know, no pun intended, weeded out patients who were just, quote, looking for a, you know, a cannabis prescription to be mm -hmm. able to go by and get high, right? We required medical records. So you had to show me that you were already diagnosed with migraines and had tried other treatment or um, that you had you know, an opioid prescription for your severe and chronic back pain. So we we were not just seeing anybody who just wanted pot. Let's put it that yeah. way. Okay. But also just to, to clarify, because I'm not sure everyone outside of the US or California fully realizes you can't prescribe in the sense that, you know, a physician would normally prescribe a medication. You're recommending. And then how does the patient go right. about to actually get their medicine? And is there any guarantee that it's going to be quality safe you know kind of right. medical so, grade etc right so before 2018 
California was truly, we used to joke around the Wild West because we had no regulations on medical cannabis. And remember, we passed a law in 1996, the first law in the United States for approval of medical cannabis. And there was no grand design, and that was part of the problem, was that the law was very vague. And, you know, lawyers might say the, the bad news is the law is vague, but the good news, the law is vague. So there was this gray area, right? Mm -hmm. So what ended up, the way it evolved was it was a uh, voter referendum. So we, as Californians, voted it in. The state had to adopt a program, and they did a very poor job. They just did not even want to address it. And they even initially went after doctors in the beginning. I can't tell you how many uh, patients were, true patients were arrested, were uh, thrown in jail, had to go to court to fight, even though there, this law existed. And part of that was because uh, the state did a very bad job at setting up any type of program from, you know, people growing to the patients and everybody in between. There just was no rhyme or reason to any of it. So what ended up happening with patients is it turned out they said to doctors, you can give people a written document, but then you better make sure that if a patient shows that at three o'clock in the morning, they get pulled over, that law enforcement can call and verify. So doctors had set up their own, quote, verification system. So a patient would leave my office with a document that said, I've examined this patient, I've reviewed their medical history. They qualify under the law as a medical cannabis patient. And, uh, you know, here's our information if you need to verify this. And so here and, you know, here and there we would get phone calls as so-and-so a patient. But the way it then evolved even further was that in order to purchase your medical cannabis, these dispensaries would pop up, of course, without licensing or anything. So it was buyer beware. But if the patient had the letter and the letter could be verified, uh, uh, at a doctor's office, then the patient could purchase their medicine. And that's kind of how it evolved. Um, and then the state uh, in 2002 set up a program where a patient could apply to the state, pay a fee, show the letter. The state would independently verify that the doctor was, you know, real and then would issue a card. Uh, they would, you know, the state would reach out to me, is this your patient? Yes. They would give the patient a card and then that card would protect them from any further issues with law enforcement. So there was, you know, kind of, it was kind of like, a, you know, a, the program evolved. But then in 2016, uh, legalization of cannabis uh, was another voter referendum. It was voted in uh, becoming, so California became a state where there's a, what's called adult use. Um, and but it did not take away the medical program and so what the state did was they lumped it all together medical and uh, adult use to regulate it all and that's when the state finally started issuing licenses to cultivators to processors to distribution centers to dispensaries and then if you're over 21 you can have a medical letter which gives you some extra uh, perks, so to speak, you can buy more medicine and um, um, you have a little added extra protection. And then, but again, if you're over 21, you can walk into one of these shops and, and mm -hmm. as long as you show ID, you can buy um, uh, cannabis for either medical use or recreational use. 
So how does it work with your with your patients, which are, who are now mostly pediatric? Um, so right. it's, it's it's crucially important with 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 children. I mean, any patient, but particularly with children, that you know that these are quality, safe, um, right. have come you know with uh, um, testing, you know, certificate of analysis, all that kind of stuff. Do you so do you recommend specific products for them? And where to get well, them. well, first, let me say that anybody under 21 by law, in order to use cannabis legally, has to have an approval by a physician. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we, what we do if they're under 21 is we also, well, between 18 and 21, not necessarily, but under 18, we assign a caregiver as well. So the caregiver gets an approval letter as well. And it says, I'm not a patient, but I have been approved to help so-and-so, right, with their mm -hmm. medicine, obviously. In when the law was when the law got voted in in 2016, and then what happened was January 1, 2018, was when it was enacted. All the you know work over a year and a half um, created a regulatory um, uh, program. Uh, everything that was in a dispensary, basically 2018 forward was required to have the certificate of analysis. And okay. in California, there's a pretty strict um, criteria for um, the labeling. So meaning that the cannabinoid profile that is on the label has to be uh, within 10% of what the certificate of analysis says. So for instance, if a manufacturer makes a CBD oil and says it's 50 milligrams in one ml, once they're done labeling, it goes to a distribution center, which then checks, uh, does another test. And if it's within 10% of that 50, let's say 50 milligram per one ml, because as you know, different testing companies and different, you know, cannabinoid, there, there can be, things can be off a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if it says 50 milligram in one ml, and it is allowed to be within a 10% margin in either direction. It can, if can, the second test can show it anywhere from 45 to 55 milligrams per one ml. And this is good, Mary, in that that's close enough for my patients. Okay. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, people would buy one that said 50 milligrams in one ml and we would get it tested. So before 2018, I had patients sending their cannabis in to labs all over the state to get a backup test to see is this really what it is now luckily we don't have to do that anymore but it would come back like 10 milligrams in one ml well that's very different mm. than 50 right yeah so um the current program is working um mm -hmm. it's strict but that's good because there's consumer protection right and we want to know that what's on the label is actually what you're getting in in the bottle or in the product and um uh, there's no reason that it should be any other way. Mm -hmm. So how did you make the move into, I mean, essentially just seeing children um, and prescribing or recommending cannabis? That's a, a good question. And well, in 2013, there was a CNN documentary mm. that came out with Dr. Sanjay Gupta uh, focused on that little girl, Charlotte Figgy in Colorado, yeah. who had a Dravet syndrome and who was, um, sent home with a very poor prognosis and um, her parents luckily found cannabis oil and, and specifically some high CBD or CBD dominant cannabis oil which uh, made a big difference um, in her life and once they aired that we started to get phone calls from people with children and because of my pediatric background 
and I had already probably treated maybe maybe five kids by that point who had come into my office either with end-stage cancer. It was really a quality of life at the at the end of life that I was treating. But remember, because of my background, I just have a comfort level with sick children. It's what I did for many years, work mm-hmm. in a, a big children's hospital taking care of sick children. Um, and what I had seen, you know, for me, Mary, the timing was great. Look, I started doing this in 2007, investigating it, started working in the field in 2008. So by the time 2013 rolled around, I felt extremely comfortable medicating people with cannabis. I felt that I understood cannabis because in addition to just treating patients, I mean, clinical experience, you're seeing patients day in and day out, you know, 15, 20 patients a day, every day you get very good at this that's how why doctors do such long training is because that's how you learn and um you know certainly i knew in 2013 that cannabis was safe Mm -hmm. there's no question especially under medical supervision that's the key thing yeah 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 did you have any uh worries about introducing because you know what charlotte figgy had uh i think it was it was a um a full spectrum CBD oil, but um, obviously there are so many children that CBD is not enough, and you need to introduce a little bit of THC. Was that were you kind of worried about doing that? Because you know these are kids, and you know it's THC, and <laughs> I wasn't worried about it because I had seen many, many, many patients use THC with no untoward effects, again, because of their medical use. And I think it's really important that we separate medical and what we call recreational use. Remember, what is the goal of recreational use? It's to get high, to get Mm -hmm. intoxicated. And I'm not judging. If someone wants to do that, go right ahead. We have people all over the world drinking tons of alcohol and killing themselves with it not to mention other other drugs, right? Cannabis is one of the safest. And, you know, after the experience that I saw with my patients, sometimes you have to alter the brain in order to get away from your chronic condition. You don't get mm-hmm. to take your back off and go on a cruise, you know? Your chronic back pain, you've had two surgeries, you're not any better. Uh, you don't get to walk away from that. That's part of you. And sometimes the only way to get away from that is to alter your pain perception. I mean, that's what opioids are doing, and everybody accepts that. Mm. Um, it's you're altering your your perception of the pain. It's not fixing the pain. And cannabis is, is I, would, I would dare to say, uh, significantly better in the way that not only does it alter that pain perception, but it's anti-inflammatory. So you're getting, you are getting some benefits behind the scenes that you Mm. probably don't even notice. But I wasn't really worried about medicating these children because you have to remember in the beginning, the children coming to me, which are similar to the kids that I see now, were devastatingly ill. It wasn't my child has a boo-boo. It was my child's having a hundred seizures a day. My child's in the hospital every six weeks on a ventilator because he goes into status epilepticus, which is a uncontrolled, prolonged seizure, which is deadly. And so when you live in the world of this type of severe, devastating illness, THC is a cupcake compared to many of the drugs that these children are taking. Yeah. And I know that THC 
is very unlikely to cause the kind of brain damage that everybody's running around claiming it causes because it doesn't um, because it's not being it wasn't studied in children with severe underlying endo like these kids likely have underlying endocannabinoid dysfunction mm-hmm. and that is not the same as the population of patients that are studied uh, looking at chronic heavy recreational use of THC and then over long term you study those patients and even then when you look at the research from 70s 80s and 90s much of it is very biased but when you look at it oh these patients that are chronic heavy users of THC with no CBD may have a slight decrease in IQ I think they reported eight points may have increased risk of anxiety as a teenage uh, as a young adult uh, may have issues with executive functioning, all of that, right? That is not what we're doing with a six-year-old who has 100 seizures a day. It's apples and oranges. You cannot compare yeah. a, a child with a devastating seizure disorder with a teenager who, you know, smokes pot all day long. That is, that's that's not the same. <laughs> no, it's not. And, and yet, you know, as we experience here in, in the UK, you know, the kind of, the governing body for um, pediatric neurologists, uh, you know, are using those studies as a reason. And, you know, and, you know these children are not going to make it to their teenage years and, and potential psychosis, you know, if they have a massive seizure and, and that's the end of their, of their, well, their, their little life. But I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just so un, unfathomable. Um, and it's interesting what you say um, about, you know, the sort of their, some kind of endocannabinoid dysfunction because I, I I feel like I've read something from Rafael Machulam when I feel like he did a study giving um, cannabis that was high in THC to children who I think were going through um, had cancer and were going through chemo for the nausea and, and his observation well, that, was that it didn't affect right. them in the same way as well that was adults, that was delta 8 that was delta 8 THC okay. in that study so isolated okay. delta 8 but still remember it has a similar mechanism yeah It's about two-thirds or, you know, 75% as potent as THC. It works as the same similar mechanism of action where it binds to um, um, cannabinoid receptors and to serotonin receptors to decrease, you know, vomiting, nausea, right? Again, uh, changing the message in the brain. But the reality is, is that in these children, which is more devastating to them, a little bit of THC? that helps prevent seizures or severe seizures ongoing. Yeah. And also, you know, the, 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 the cognitive damage that's done by uncontrolled seizures, you know, and, and the a sort of repeated story that I, you know, just kind of always gives me goosebumps is when these children's seizures are finally controlled, you know, through cannabis um, and they start to do things, make those, you know, those milestones that they'd lost, actually, they might have been able to speak before they started having seizures. Now they can start speaking again. Now they can, you know, make eye contact with their parents. They start sort of speaking. They start dressing themselves for the for the first time. And it's like, you know, it's, it's and that's, you know, be, partly because of the, the kind of halting, that damage that's been, been done to their brain and, and affecting their, their, their childhood development. Um, That's right. And every study that was published on CBD use, or let's say CBD dominant uh, uh, cannabis compounds in children who have epilepsy, 
and what we call intractable or treatment resistant epilepsy, meaning they've tried other medications and they don't work. And that's, believe it or not, a very big portion. Only 65% or so of patients with epilepsy respond to the first or second drug that's given to them. After the second, and again, these have to be appropriate drugs, the first and second should be appropriately chosen, but the chance of responding to the third, fourth, fifth, and so on is less than 4%. And so then these children get labeled intractable epilepsy or refractory epilepsy or, or treatment resistant, multiple terminology that means the same thing, which is we don't have anything for you. So we're just gonna keep trying different drugs and we'll stack a bunch of drugs together. I mean, I had a child come in to my office on seven different anti-epileptic drugs. Mm -hmm. His mother said he barely could open his eyes because all of these drugs have the same side effect of drowsiness or somnolence. And he was still having 10 seizures a day. Why would you, how, how did that end up happening? How do you end up on seven medications, none of which are helping and still having 10 seizures a day? How is mm -hmm. that treatment? I find that fascinating. It feels like negligence to be fair. It's like, well, it's, it's, it's it's, mm -hmm. it's, and nobody questions that, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of accepted. Oh, he has bad seizures. We're just going to keep throwing drugs at him. Mm. Cannabis. So in, I started to say in all the, the reports, so there was a report, uh, uh, and these are all retrospective, which means that it was basically surveys or um, patients using CBD, um, I don't want to say on their own, with medical supervision, but then the data was collected. It wasn't against a placebo, and it wasn't, so it wasn't a clinical trial, a specific clinical trial. This is just gathering data and reporting on it. And, you know, four or five reports came out between 2015 and I want to say 2018 or 2019, and all of them reported very similar benefits in addition to a reduction of seizures, seizure frequency, a reduction of duration, of a duration of seizures, meaning the seizures were shorter, an improved recovery from the seizures. So if a child has bad seizures, sometimes they'll sleep for the rest of the day, they, or if they get rescue medicine, they're, which is a benzodiazepine, they're out of it for the next 24 hours. Um, I have parents saying my child recovered 15 minutes, yeah. like laid down, you know, was quiet on the couch for 15 minutes and then got up and started running around the house again. I mean, that's amazing if a child yeah. has a bad seizure and able to recover quickly. But one of the um, reports, uh, when we looked, if you compare all these studies in terms of the, you know, extra beneficial side effects was increased alertness, mm. right? More verbal, better motor skills, less need for rescue medicine, less hospitalizations. How is any of this negative? Mm -hmm. And when you ask the parents about negative side effects, they were far and few between, and they were mostly mild. And again, this is with whole plant extract. Because we should point out, because the, you know, the, um, the clinical studies, which I guess are the only ones really, the sort of true kind of RCTs have been for epidiolics. At well, a much higher doses, right, per per kilogram of body weight in these children. That's right. That's right. And there was a recent report that came out comparing whole plant extract CBD with purified CBD, which is what Epidiolex is. Mm. And when you compare them, it's really interesting results. Um, if you compare just looking at overall seizure reduction 
The whole plant extract had about a 70%, meaning 70% of patients reported seizure reduction, and I think it was for, I want to say, at 40% for the epidiolex. Um, when you looked at what we call the standard clinical definition of seizure reduction, which would be a greater than 50% reduction of seizures, right, uh, there was no difference between the two. So one could theoretically say, oh, well, then I could do either. But then looking at dosing, for whole plant extract, dosing, and remember, in pediatrics, we do weight-based dosing because children mm -hmm. grow, and you don't want them to outgrow their dose, so you want to keep up. So the way we measure that is we measure milligrams per kilo of body weight per day dosing. Whole plant CBD, on average, was about 6 milligrams per kilo per day that was needed. And for uh, the purified CBD, the pharmaceutical, um, was 25 milligram per kilo per day. So mm -hmm. there's a big difference there. And what, did, what, what does that mean? Well, then when you look at the side effects, it was statistically significant that both mild and more severe side effects were um, significantly lower in the whole plant extract versus mm -hmm. the purified. So in the way to look at that, like why would that happen? Well, we're asking in a purified CBD preparation, you are asking CBD to do all the work. So it has to be a high dose in, in many of the patients. Not everybody. There are some patients who respond to a lower dose. But in most patients, the higher doses is needed. In the whole you plant mean as, extract, as opposed to the entourage effect. Exactly. So in the mm -hmm. whole plant, you've got other compounds that are contributing to the beneficial or medicinal effects. Meaning, if there's a little THC in there, THC is an anticonvulsant. Uh, maybe there's a little CBDA in the mix. That's an anticonvulsant. THCA is an anticonvulsant. Mm -hmm. Linalool is an anticonvulsant. Beta-caryophylline is an anti-inflammatory. All of these compounds working together are kind of giving you the, the full effect mm -hmm. at a lower dose. And so this is why we find these results. So this is what we've suspected. Yeah. You know, and now we have this paper that was published, I want to say last year or the year before, that shows these um, differences. Another paper came out, too, that compared CBD with placebo. And it was statistically significant that CBD reduced seizures. So it's not just mm -hmm. parents saying this. This is no longer anecdotal. Right. And um, there's a physician, a neurologist, a brilliant guy in Canada who, you know, the last time he and I were on a conference Together, he came out and said, if you're a neurologist and you don't acknowledge that CBD is a, an anticonvulsant, you are missing out on helping a lot of people. You know, here in the UK, um, pediatric neurologists will acknowledge uh, that Epidiolex um, has uh, an anti-seizure effect, you know, purified CBD, but they're not willing to... Um, accept that you know anything else really or consider you know the possibility of prescribing anything else because it hasn't no, nothing else has been through the rcts and that is for them the gold standard well for most people but um... well and i i understand that i understand that adherence but i would say that in the in the um face of what some of these children are struggling with that it is clear-cut now that cannabis is safe and that especially if you set up a regulatory process 
by which the government says, in order to sell this product, you have to jump through these hoops so that the people at the end of who are using this product have some consumer safety. Why not just set it up? Why do we want to encourage people to go to the underground or illicit market or to, I mean, let's, it's not going away and parents are going to use it, period. Right, yeah. So let's all be adults and let's say, let's set up a program and hey, why don't I take on doing the randomized controlled trial? Hey, government, I'm a doctor. I've worked in this field for 20 years. Can you please let me do this? I mean, I, we're fighting this in the, in the United States. The, the separate states here are passing laws and the federal government saying, ah, we're going to let the states deal with it. But of course, they've continued to keep all parts of cannabis um, as illegal. So that mm-hmm. does not help us when we are trying to do research. They've made it illegal for me to control, um, like remember in a, in a study, you have to have, quote, the study drug. It doesn't help me to compare apples and oranges in my patients. If I wanted to try one particular product to see the benefits of it, I have to control that, right? Um, and so it, I just don't understand the reluctance to move forward. We have the, the, the knowledge that we have. We have um, so much research being published that it's very hard to even keep up. Mm. And it's just, I, I just don't get the fear. And I don't, you know, everybody always says, follow the money when it doesn't make sense. You know, are pharmaceutical companies actively lobbying in the United States to the to our politicians in Washington, D.C. saying, you know, don't let, you know, don't change this so that people can study cannabis? Like, I have no idea if that's happening. I, but I still, to this point, don't understand. We're only here for a short time on Earth. Let's, let, why, don't, why wouldn't we as physicians lead the way and say this is a tool that was thrown away many, many years ago? And now we have it back. Why don't we do the right thing and and, and learn about it so yeah. we can understand who might benefit and who might not benefit? That would help me too. I don't want to tell a parent, sure, I, I think I can help you. And then after they spend all this money, it turns out it doesn't work and their yeah. child really wasn't a great candidate. Wouldn't it be great for me to know who's a candidate ahead of time? Mm. Which, which kind of brings me on to... Um... A paper that you've co-authored because you know kind of um, epilepsy pediatric epilepsy is is one um, type of patient that you you know you see a lot of but also you you treat children with autism um, with quite a lot of success right and I know you've you've been involved with um, a paper that was trying to work out who who are the patients that might respond best or why patients you know these children with autism respond to to, to cannabis Right, that's right. So we published our first paper was in December, and then we have another paper coming out in March with the same data set, or well, different data set, but same population. So we took uh, working with a company called Canformatics, um, uh, who has the technology to measure what's called biomarkers, which are just chemical compounds in your body that reflect uh, chemical pathways. Um, we measured this through saliva. So we recruited 15 children with autism. Who, and by the way, autism and epilepsy do often run together. Mm-hmm. In, our, yeah. in our study, we looked at only, only autism to try to isolate that particular and not complicate it. Um, but 
Um, of, with those 15 children, what we did was we collected saliva in the morning before they took their medical cannabis. And all of these children had been on medical cannabis for their autism diagnosis for at least one year. And they were children who had had some success, who were where the parents were reporting some benefits. We collected the saliva, looked at the biomarkers before the child received their medical cannabis dosing. So they collect saliva, then they get their dose, and then about 90 minutes later, which most parents reported to be the time when they saw uh, the child um, responding to the medicine, whether it be less hyper, less aggressive, more focused, um, just overall calm, uh, less um, um, uh, less self-injurious, you know, these types of things. We collected saliva at that point again. And we looked at what's called cannabis-responsive biomarkers. So the, tech, the R&D, so the research and development on these cannabis-responsive biomarkers um, has been looked at. And we only looked at biomarkers where there's some evidence in the research in the overall research that's out there that um, where these chemical pathways have been looked at already for autism. And it turned out that um, the children that uh, in the study, their biomarkers were markedly, what, what we would say out of the physiologic range prior to getting their medical cannabis. And then the biomarker measurement that was collected after they got their dose, all of those biomarkers, or many of them, shifted towards the physiologic range. Now, the physiologic range is what? It would be considered the range of, of these chemical pathway biomarkers in someone who doesn't have autism, who's not manifesting these unwanted or difficult behaviors or challenges. And so the, the way we established that range was we, we collected saliva uh, from nine children who had no evidence of autism or special needs or developmental um, or neurologic issues to establish that um, physiologic range. So, you know, the way to kind of look at it is if you go to get a blood test to look at, let's say, your glucose level in your bloodstream, and it, you know, for most ranges somewhere, most people are on average about 80, but there can be a range, let's say, 60 to 100. In, in a particular lab. So if I measure your um, glucose, Mary, in your bloodstream and it comes back, you know, 92, you're within that physiologic range, right? But if it comes back 400, you're clearly outside of that physiologic range. And so that's kind of what we, how we would determine you know, in healthy people, where would you be? And how do we know that your labs are abnormal? Well, we measure them and look. So it's a very similar way to try to measure the status of what's going on with these children. And so we found that what's really interesting is that kids who had very low biomarkers, let's say, or even there were a couple kids whose their biomarkers were like we couldn't even measure them. They were non-existent. It was zero. Um, after their medical cannabis, it came up towards the physiologic range. Mm. And in kids who had very high levels, it shifted, uh, corrected downward towards oh, the physiologic so range. It is fascinating because the idea behind cannabis as a medicine has always been this idea of 
what we call maintaining homeostasis, that the mm -hmm. body is using the endocannabinoid system to balance either under, under messages or over messages. So we know, for instance, that nausea or pain, anxiety, seizures, you know, um, behavioral outbursts, these are over messages. This is neuro excitation of the brain. The brain is overly excited and sending over message. And what does cannabis do? It helps rein it in. But what's interesting with this, um, with this study is it showed that even children who had very low levels of these biomarkers, um, it helped correct, shift it up, meaning maybe it kick-started these little chemical pathways. So this is very preliminary data. It's very exciting. Uh, the it's second really paper, exciting. yeah, the second <laughs> I paper, very that, excited. <laughs> the second paper coming out in March. Um, the reason we separated the data was that we had different classifications of these biomarkers. So one, uh, the first paper looked at uh, uh, like neurotransmitter type biomarkers, but the second paper is looking at the fatty acids, which part of is the endocannabinoid system, of course. And so we saw very exciting results uh, in this second, published in the second paper as well, with correction of the abnormalities within these fatty acid biomarkers. And it's just, you know, it it's, so the reason that I'm super excited about it is up until now, we have what, you know, everybody's calling anecdotal reports. The parent says, yeah, my child's better right? Even a teacher who doesn't know that the child's on cannabis gives a better report. He's calmer, the child's focused, there's less outbursts, right? But still it's called anecdotal because it can't mm -hmm. be measured, right? Now, I believe the anecdotal reports because when a child's not doing well, these par my, the parents in my practice do not hesitate to let me know, which is good, of course, so that I can help fix it, right? They don't just throw medicine at their child and, and say, oh yeah, it's not working, but I'm going to give it anyway. Nobody's doing that. It's expensive and it's frustrating. You're, you're doing something and it's not helping. You're not going to necessarily continue to do that. So I understand that when a parent reports to me, my, the school is reporting my child's doing well and my child hasn't, you know, destroyed the house in a, in the last five months. The, the, these are very meaningful reports. But remember, it's nice to have objective data too. Mm -hmm. And this is the first objective data of physiologic improvement of documented um, balancing of these chemical pathways. And, and, and let me just share, we do not have that with the drugs that are, the pharmaceuticals that are being used with autism. There's no right. evidence. They just only use behavioral uh, surveys or behavioral scales to measure a child's um, response. So I'm going to go so far as to say that I now have proof that, or preliminary proof, that cannabis um, can correct these abnormal pathways, but nobody has anything mm -hmm. to show me that an antipsychotic does the same thing for a child. No. I mean, we're talking about cannabis in this context as being kind of a homogenous thing plants but was there variations in the you know the kind of cannabinoid profiles was there anything you could extrapolate from 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 that you know what the different types of um, cannabis preparations they were taking right. it's such a great question because everybody's asking me that and it's that's the next place we want to go we need to have further research which we're planning on doing 
to build the database to be able to correlate a specific cannabinoid or preparation with a specific or some specific uh, pathways. We were able to detect some signaling from like CBD addresses these pathways, THC addresses these pathways, but we just did not have enough patients or kids in the study to be able to do that. And remember, you want to first, you know, dip your toe in before jumping full in, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what we our plan to do is to continue with further research looking at autism as well to build the data set to be able to correlate in this particular um in these two papers when you look at the chart which is in the paper and we have you know the the kids that participated by the way they were ages 6 to 12 and they were all given a little number so they obviously their names aren't in there but we have a little chart that shows their dosing and the breakdown of the cannabinoids that date that they take for their particular um, symptoms and what I'm what what's interesting is you'll see that not one child is on the same protocol as another child and why mm -hmm. is that well when patients come to me before they've started anything you know I do a, a full history and assess using my clinical judgment plus what's in the scientific literature to say okay let's start here everybody has to have a starting point and sometimes we get lucky and the starting point is what the child will respond to, but sometimes it's not. But it's going through this kind of my, I call it my rule it in or rule it out method. So we start with one product. you got to start somewhere. It's either going to be a high CBD or kind of a, a CBD THC uh, equal, depending on the symptoms. And we start low, we titrate up dosing, and we see the child's response. And then the parents give me feedback and then we adjust. And ruling in or ruling out that product, if we rule it out, we try something new. If we rule it in, what's the dose that gives the child the best result? Mm -hmm. We've, now we keep that on the list, and then we try something else if there are still symptoms to be addressed. I have patients that take four different products. They take a high CBD, they can take a one-to-one, -one, they can take a straight THC, they can take CBG, they might be taking a THCA product, a CBDA product, and then that becomes their regimen. No, I so said, does it ever work? Say, for example, um, a child has, um, I don't know, sort of a self-injurious outburst or whatever. Is there ever sort of a particular product that works for that particular behavioral um, outburst or right. issue? Well, um, so there is... In the cannabis world, it's never one size fits all. So what I would say is that if someone came to me and said, my child's highly aggressive, self-injurious, um, these types of, of difficult challenges, then I would likely start with a product that has a little more THC uh, in it when compared to a CBD dominant. So usually in my practice, something like a 25 to one CBD to THC is kind of where I start with most patients. However, if they're having a lot of challenges with aggression towards others or self or difficulty sleeping, I will often start with a lower ratio, like a four to one or one to one, just in order to kind of acutely manage those unwanted mm -hmm. outbursts. 
And why would I do that? Well, one, it seems that that works, but two, sometimes when you're starting with CBD dominant products, CBD is known in lower doses to sometimes be overstimulating for children with autism. I've heard this, yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you give them CBD in a low dose, because again, I can't guess what dose a child's going to need. And CBD has what we call a very wide range of dosing. There are some people that respond to 10 milligrams and some need 400. It's a very wide therapeutic range for CBD. And so if I start at 10 milligrams for a child and they're bouncing off the walls or more aggressive, I've not necessarily helped the issue. And I usually, of course, explain to the parents ahead of time, I might make your child worse before I make them better. But if low dose, we rule it out quickly, we ramp up the dosing. But in certain cases where a child is really struggling, like throwing chairs in a classroom and getting kicked out of school, I will often start with a lower ratio just to try to help manage that behavior and then gives us time to be able because you know that when you have someone in that kind of my child's thrown out of school they're not being they're being not allowed to come back or just I've, I've had to go every day to go pick him up from school and I say him a lot it seems to be more common with boys but it happens with girls um, but we see um, sometimes I'm, I, I'm trying to just address the issue more quickly if it in a child who doesn't have that aggression and that those kinds of challenges, often I'll start with a high CBD, low THC. So there's an article that came out of Israel, I wanna say 2018 or I think 2019, where they took six, had 60 children enroll in the trial. And these were children who had, for the most part, very severe difficulties with mm -hmm. aggression and uh, just, just where, you know, day to day was just difficult. And in that, um, in that um, study, they started with a 20 to 1 CBD to THC ratio. And 52% of the patients responded to that at whatever dose. They started at 1 milligram per kilo per day and titrated up to 10 milligram per kilo per day. And 50% saw a benefit. The other 50%, or I want, well, it's 52%, the other 48%, they added in THC, which when you add it to another product, it will lower the ratio, right? So instead of 20 to one, if you add in a little bit of THC and you calculate the milligrams comparing CBD and THC, let's say it went to 15 to one. Mm -hmm. They went all the way down to six to one. They didn't go any further than that. They were concerned about you know, intoxication. But what they found was that of that um, group, 48% of the starting group that did not respond to the higher ratio, that another 33% of that group did respond to added in THC. So at the end result, something like, I think 85% or 82% responded overall. This is yeah. why it's not one size fits all. Because it's 50-50 yeah. if your kid's gonna respond to CBD high, you know, CBD dominant. But it's a place to start. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering yeah. though, Bonnie, um, is this one of the reasons why there's such a pushback from um, pediatric neurologists um, that it is so personalized, that it is so complex? You know, they, they'd have to study their asses off, um, being quite British there, but, to, you know, to kind of get up to speed, you know, with the nuances and the complexity and um, maybe they just <laughs> like 
That. But to <laughs> me, it's look. just another medicine. So if another right. pharmaceutical came out, you would learn about it before you'd be giving it out to your patients. And then the first 10 patients you give it to, you're going to learn a lot about it, mm-hmm. right? And if you're you're a doctor who follows your oath of do no harm, you're going to be careful with that drug. And I posit that once you learn about CBD, the nuances of it, not only so you learn about but you know it's safe my goodness you don't have to worry about anybody having a terrible reaction to it and ending up in the emergency room it's it's cbd oil it really you have to know drug interactions and you have to but it's no different than any other drug so why do we accept a new let's say pharmaceutical that comes out for seizures but we don't want to learn about cbd i i again i sorry there's no excuse for not learning about it parents are going to use it 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 is it is it, we must learn about it if we're going to help people. And it doesn't help if you are a true scientist to start saying from the beginning, this is bad. Right. It is not bad. It is not good. It is just another tool in your toolbox. And you, you should learn about it and you should incorporate it into your practice. And if you don't want to incorporate it into your practice, then refer those patients to somebody who will help them. Yeah. It is to me that it's cruel. And it's not, it's just, it's not humane to, to tell people, don't use this. Because what is a parent going to think about you? And I, I, maybe you don't care, but they go home and they're going to use it and their child goes from 100 seizures a day down to six and you're saying don't. I mean, what does that say about you? And what does that say about your caring for that child? That you know better? Do you really know better if you're saying no to CBD for these kids with seizures or the kids with autism who are struggling? I don't, again, I don't understand it. There's nothing I'm doing that's magical. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of went to a whole new level here in the UK when the um, uh, the British Pediatric Neurologist Association reported um, a prescribing pediatrician to our um, British Medical Association, I think it was, because they were just outraged that he, even though he was getting, you know, great results, they didn't care about that. They were outraged that he was um, a pediatrician and not a pedi- pediatric neurologist who was, was, I think that was one of their main issues. Um, and thankfully, the, the BMA found in favor of, of this, um, this uh, pediatrician. But, you know, he, he, there's a point in time when, you know, he lost a lot of patients um, from his normal practice and he was kind of blacklisted and all sorts right. of things. And it was, you know, it's, it's not only are they... And all he's trying to do is help people. That's yeah. all he's doing. He's, yeah. he's doing what I've been do- I've been doing this now. This is my 14th year working in the field of cannabis medicine. And as I tell everybody, I'm a very well-trained, very conservative physician. I am not some fringe doctor. I'm really not. Um, and people say, oh, that you're a pioneer and you're brave. No, I just... I feel like it's common sense. And maybe part of it too is that, you know, I I early on had a neurologist called me and said, who do you think you are? What are you doing? And I said, your patient's in my office, not because I'm holding a gun to their head. Obviously what you're doing is not working and they're desperate. And I'm not taking advantage because I don't sell the oil. I'm not making money on that. I'm just taking on a patient who I'm willing to help. And P.S., she's doing better. I don't understand all the anger. (laughs) Where's it coming from? And then I realized something very interesting is that, and and I'm sorry to say this if any doctors are listening. I'm sorry if this hurts your feelings, but check your ego. This is a child, and it's a child's life. 
So the ego has nothing to do with it. Why? If a doctor is helping somebody and it appears to be safe and the parents are thrilled with the result, where do you get off saying, don't do this? I just, I'm sorry. I'm just going to call it out for what it is. Wouldn't you at least be curious, you know, oh, I'm one would think, (laughs) yes. So, and I'm going to tell you something. I got an email from a doctor at a very prestigious California university. He's a brilliant physician and he emailed me and he said, I need to meet with you. I have a patient who I've not been able to really help over the last six months and they came to you and it's been two weeks and she's significantly better. And you know what he said to me? I need to know what you know. Why? Because he wants to be able to help those patients right. who are resistant to treatment well, as great. well. And I was, response, right? <laughs> I just said, this is a decent, kind human being, as well as a brilliant doctor. Yeah. Because when you read his credentials, you're kind of like, ooh. And I, I have imposter syndrome when I speak to somebody like that. <laughs> I think, well, oh my goodness, you know? How is it possible that he's asking me? Well, it's just, it's a different field, but my goodness, to be open like that and to want to help patients and to say to me, Bonnie, what products and, you know, what ratios and, you know, really, how should I approach this? So that's, you know, amazing. And that's how doctors should be. They shouldn't be so resistant. Absolutely. And if you're going to keep saying there's not enough research, well, then do fight for the research (laughs) because how do you ignore what the patients are saying? Just to finish off, Bonnie, I mean, I could just talk to you forever, frankly, but um, can you tell us about, uh, you're an author um, and uh, you've got a couple of books, right, that you've, that you've written? That's right. So my first book, Cannabis Revealed, was a book that I um, had been thinking about writing. And um, the reason I thought about writing it was because one of my adult patients who was in kidney failure... Uh, was using cannabis to mitigate the side effects of his kidney failure and his dialysis. So if you've ever known anybody who goes through dialysis, it's, it's, it's very, it's a big stressor on the body, but also it's very anxiety provoking. Um, Having had a family member as well go through dialysis, you you know, I witnessed it now and I, it's very challenging. And he was such a lovely man. And when he came into my office, he wasn't, you know, pretty young, younger than me. And he um, said, how do I always learn so much when I come and talk to you? How, where do I get all this information? And then I realized, you know, you have to kind of go on the internet and follow leads. I said, boy, I'd love to put all my clinical experience in a book. And I finally gave myself a deadline back in, you know, 2015, 2016 to have it out by Christmas, 2016. And I ended up self-publishing it. It was called Cannabis Revealed. I think there's a few copies that you can buy, but it's outdated already because that's how quickly we are learning because of the new laws and the research coming out. So I rewrote it uh, with the help of a publishing company who purchased the rights to it. um, And it got published in uh, September, 2020 with a new title called Cannabis is Medicine, uh, which was my original title, which I got Mm -hmm. talked out of originally by family and friends. Um, But it, so it's, it's, just kind of taking the cannabis revealed, but updating everything to the latest and greatest as of 2020. And there's still, of course, new, even newer research since then, but it gives you, it's, it's a good kind of reference book to have. I go, 
explain the endocannabinoid system, how it works and what it's for, and then I explain what happens when it doesn't work well and, and, and when it's broken or dysfunctional. And then I go through what the plant is made up of and the phytocannabinoids, the terpenes, flavonoids. And then I go through, there's a chapter, how to use cannabis as, as medicine. And I talk about my rule it in or rule it out just to give people a guideline. Mm -hmm. Talk about ratios, about concentrations, about the various delivery methods. So tinctures versus edibles versus inhalation, topical. Um, and then there's about, I think, 31 ailments total that are discussed in terms of what does the research show and what is my clinical experience, kind of a place to start. Mm -hmm. It doesn't substitute for a, a knowledgeable clinician, but it at least gives you the baseline understanding of what you might need to know if you want to enter into treatment with medical cannabis for either yourself or your loved one. Well, I'll, I'll be adding in the show notes a link so anybody who's interested in, in getting your book, they can get their hands on it. Um, and I'll, and share you, I'll share with you also a link to the research as well, to the, uh, the biomarker research. Great. Anything else you'd like to add, Bonnie, before we finish? Uh, no, the only other thing is that I'm um, getting my act together to put out a bunch of educational videos on YouTube, uh, free uh, educational videos, because I do think that it's helpful to have visuals when you're learning about the endocannabinoid system, and I realize that's kind of the only way to do this. So um, just starting that process, uh, but I should have a bunch of videos uploaded uh, by spring. And so Great. people who are interested in learning about the endocannabinoid system and, you know, I do have videos out there that, you know, were taken uh, from various conferences, but these are going to be, you know, truly um, educational based on um, what I've learned and, and uh, over the past number of years supported by research. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Um, and um, thank you. <laughs> thank you for existing. Um, you know, I know patients and doctors here in the UK and parents are so grateful for the support you know that that, that we get you know when you, you partake in webinars here and and share your knowledge um, and I'm sure these these sort of new educational videos will be a great addition to all the work that you do so thank you well thank you so much Mary and thank you for all your work putting wonderful articles out there and um, helping to share the information Thank you for listening to Cannabis Voices. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, review and share with your family and friends.